Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Nicole Yershon, and she set up an innovation lab at Ogilvy and had a desire to bring in kids in their 15, 16 who, who were at risk of being expelled. And she did that below the radar so that the chairman didn't know she was doing it because he didn't like the idea when he first heard about it. So we talk about that. She called that her rough diamond program. And we talk about how that worked and, and why those kids were important to her innovation. Because her job at Ogilvy at the time was, was to try and get Ogilvy into the 21st century to take them on that transition from analog to digital. We chat about how she came to write her book and some of the highlights of her book around particularly the fear manifesto. We chat about a whole load of stuff, including a trip down memory lane a little for me, the School of Communication Arts. I used to run a a program for e-commerce directors uh, with Jamie Hancock's called Commerce Futures. And, and I know we had the kids in from, from that school to do a session at one of our events, which was sensational. So we chat a little bit about that. We talk about an event. Uh, I'll have to see, put it in my calendar. The Summit at Sea, which is now in LA. Burning Man in LA, but not in the desert. And how she managed to write her book. So a fantastic conversation, a great career. And we chat about what she does now, uh, how she helps leaders inside organizations innovate and how she brings together a, a group of people in her sort of lab for hire or her collective and puts them to work to fix problems for people. Fantastic. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Nicole as much as I did. Hi, I'm Nicole Yershin and my company is the NY Collective and I'm an Amazon awarded author. Um, my book is called Rough Diamond and I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today and also for um, hopefully answering the questions as honestly as I can and there'll be a few gems and nuggets for people to take away with them. Nicole, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, the rough diamond in your book, does that refer to, is that you or is that the lab you built at Ogilvy? What? Oh, the rough, rough diamond was a name that we, we put to our programme for future talent. Um, it was called the Rough Diamond Programme, and it was about getting kids in from Hackney Tower, Hamlets and Greenwich and areas in London to get kids who are about to be expelled, probably aged between 14 and 16, into an organisation that ordinarily would always hire white middle class Oxbridge educated. And I could see from the, the changes that needed to be made that I wasn't getting anywhere with those types of people because um, they had been educated in a certain way to not question anything and I needed the ones to say well why and who says and how come and why are you doing it like that and I've seen another way that's the spirit and entrepreneurial spirit I needed and so that's why we set up the program probably about 10 11 years ago now 
It's fascinating because there was a point where I was hiring people at Rackspace and one of the thing, one of the questions I would ask all the time was, tell me what you were suspended for at school. And if people hadn't been suspended, I didn't want to hire them because they people who did have that sort of lack of trust in authority or just were happy to break the rules were likely to look at the world in a slightly different way, weren't they? Yeah, I think not disruptive for disruptive sake or not using tech for tech's sake, but there there might be another way and not being scared to try it. So whether it be maverick behavior or, I mean, I was very lucky at Ogilvy because, you know, they allowed me to be like that. I was brought in by the, you know, CEO chairmanship level and they allowed me to be that person for 16, 17 years. That was the job that I was brought in to do, to bring them into the 21st century. So the skills that I w- was able to develop, even though I was probably a pain in the ass, they management were enlightened enough to understand that I needed to, to do what I needed to do. And not everyone was obviously going to be like me, but it was that entrepreneur that obviously they knew that they needed and allowed me the space to be able to do it. What were the roles that you were I mean, so you're having multiple impacts, aren't you? You're, you're impacting potentially disadvantaged children in the local area, but you're bringing them in because there's a, there's a real business need. What, what roles were they coming in to do inside the organisation? Well, that was the beautiful thing. We didn't know. <laughs> you know, it was only once we started the programme. It was like with all of the things that we did within the lab. I couldn't do a PowerPoint presentation to explain what it was I wanted to do. So it just had to evolve. It was iterative. It, was, it wasn't it was kind of baton passing. Um, it was, uh, let's just suck it and see and see how it works. So when I first talked about it to the chairman at the time, he said, I, when we were setting up the innovation lab, he said, I don't want you to do this, this program, this rough diamond program. That's not what I had in mind for the labs and uh, the stuff that you were going to do. So I said, but it's, it's 100% important. You can't affect change without the right people. So I did it under the radar without him knowing for two years (laughs) because I couldn't explain to him what it was. It was only after that he came down to my office two years later and said, I've just had lunch with the Dean of Ravensbourne. I said, oh, Sir Robin Baker. He said, yes. And then I was able to say, we've been doing this many things with them. Um, And then he could turn around and say, that was a really good idea of mine, (laughs) as in his but joking but that was the model you had to prove by doing it was very difficult to say what it was that you wanted to do because you didn't quite know whether it was going to work and in terms of what jobs were they coming in to do we only learned that once they'd been doing the program with us for a year after the year when the program finished and I could see actually I really needed a creative lab technologist not that I knew what a creative lab technologist was, but I knew one of the guys who was our original Rough Diamond um, worked at Apple and he was an Apple genius. And he was used to working with people and explaining technology and explaining it really easily to people. I knew that's what I needed within the um, innovation lab environment. I had so many pieces of kit in there from 3D printers to augmented reality and, and Microsoft Surface tables. I needed someone that could understand and translate the tech to human speak. So we made up his job spec. And I think HR at the time said, well, uh, how do you know that's going to be relevant? How do you know what to pay? What is it that he needs to do? And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to make up the job spec now. And now there are loads of creative technologists. It's a thing. So that's what I mean. It's really, really difficult to be in that position where you're 
wanting to put something in hand and it's never been done before and no one trusts you. And so the rough diamond piece was just part of the overall lab yeah. thing you were doing. Tell me more about that. You were you were trying to find technology that Ogilvy and its clients could make use of in some way? Yeah, it was initially looking at, there were all these things that were happening outside of traditional advertising, you know, in our world. Um, I'm talking about maybe 15 years ago, there was, I'd send around emails saying, guys, there's something called Facebook, you really need to pay attention or and a few people would say, you know, stop spamming me because it wasn't for everyone. Not everyone wanted to know about these things or that it was going to disrupt their lives. So I started to understand, OK, so there's all these things out there like gaming and mobile and social and um, behavior change and big data and augmented reality and virtual reality. And it was in such an uh, embryonic stage. So I would create these semesters of learning so that the company could start to understand what was big data or what was behavior change and the semesters were six months very intense learning and i would call upon the people within the organization to say who's interested in big data or streaming and people would put their hands up and i'd maybe have 12 people from across the group so we could knock down silos it wasn't all from silent one group company anyone that was interested in that we could then bring them along for the semester and any learnings they would learn they would then pass on to their team so actually the lab didn't spend any money with hiring lots of people we got the people who were already in the organization and we just gave them more information that they were already interested in so the semester was about seeing who was out there. So say the semester was streaming for six months. We would see 10 to 15 different streaming companies every single week. I would then find a brand that was Ford at the time who wanted to do a live stream to all of their um, staff globally. So it went to 22,000 desktops in 19 countries in five languages. And we asked our TV department to do it, even though they'd never done a live stream before. And they said, you know, we only do TV. And I said, well, not anymore. And all the time, everyone's very frightened because they don't know whether it can be done. It's going to happen on time. It's going to fall over. But we do it. So the part of the semester is to see who is out there, attach it to business, implement it, make it happen, which is the scariest thing. And then throughout that semester, we have lab lunches and show and tells. And at the end, we then would have a lab day, which would be for maybe 500 people. And we would invite people to speak and exhibit and then that would close down the semester and then we would start on the next one. So at least twice a year, you would be covering everything that people talk about now, but in very, very intense detail and then able to share it with our clients so that we would then say to Ogilvy, we have a new um, product or, or, or that you can use. So it's rather than just doing TV press and posters, you can now do something within augmented reality or something within big data or streaming or whatever the semester was we would attach it to business and implement it so we would have something to sell fantastic what was it before ogilvy that got you in a position that that was you got to make up such a cool job for yourself i always had a reputation of being a fixer so even though i started my life within traffic so dave trot is is one of the authors that i would say that people need to read he's done some um, incredible books he was my mentor when I was 19. I was head of traffic at his agency called Gold Greenleys Trot. So I always had the ability to make things happen. And I thought that was normal and that everyone was like that until I got to Ogilvy and realized <laughs> large companies, not everyone is like that. And they'd prefer to have meetings and actually do something. So with that ability to make something happen and execute, 
it just allowed me to not be scared, not be paralyzed and get a small team of people to make things happen. And it didn't matter what it was. I could move them into a new building for 2000 people. I could make all these different things happen just because I had the ability to execute. I thought that was a normal thing until I kind of realized within a large company with processes that actually isn't. Yes, those processes are to do the thing they've always done in a predictable way. And if you don't know what you need to do or you've never done it before, they're not deeply helpful. And so how did you end up with that job then? What did you, you went to Ogilvy to do something different and just ended up with this lab portfolio or? I'd only ever had three jobs at that time. So Gold Greenies Trot, Simon's Palmer, two very um, well-known awarded agencies. And then the chairman of Ogilvy at the time was also the chairman of Simon's Palmer. And also he worked with me at GGT. So I'd never done a CV. So because I would always have this reputation, he at that time when I, in 2000, started at Ogilvy, he said, we just need someone to bring us into the 21st century and move us from an analog to a digital world. I don't really know what the brief is, but I'm sure you'll work it out. And because he had that trust in me, that's, you know, it was the right place and the right time. And, and because I deliver, I, I think he, he felt comfortable that I would just work it out myself. So my, my KPI wasn't bringing X amount of money uh, as most people's uh, measure of success is. My measure of success was very clearly defined as moving them from an analog to a digital world. Okay. And so the Rough Diamond program we've spoken about a little bit, how many people came through that? I got so many because we would see the kid, we'd work with Ideas Foundation and we'd have maybe five times a year kids coming in from Ideas Foundation from those schools. So maybe five or six groups of five or six, about five times a year. The program was going for 10 years. And then we would then um, speed date the kids from Ravensbourne. So that would be 60, 70 kids every May and then um, handpick about five of them to come and work with us for the year. And that's where we would they'd do 12 weeks in the summer. We'd pay them London living wage. They'd go back to school in for their last year in September. And then we would, the deal was they had to teach their teachers. So their teachers were, um, obviously they hadn't worked in industry for 20, 30 years. And so they really needed that kind of guidance as to what industry was like now. Then the kids would come back to us at Christmas and at Easter, and then we would look to employ. So probably over the course of 10 years on average, we'd employ maybe between two and five rough diamonds each year. But then there was also School of Communication Arts, which Ogilvy Labs were one of their first um, legacy sponsors. And we would give them 10 grand every year. And we would go in and we, that, that school is, works with mentors and not teachers. So the mentors come in and, and teach the kids and vice versa. So it's a beautiful program. So we work with them quite closely. And so we're touching quite a few kids, but physical employment, probably um, three to five every year. School of Communication Arts, isn't it? Yeah. I remember we did a, we did an event and I can't remember the guy's name. I just described him to the audience as the Gandalf for the uh, 21st century. The innovation that the student, what we did is there was a sort of a coffee break and, and the brands in the room had to say what their biggest problem was today. And then the students in the coffee break came up with solutions to the brand problem. And it was just absolutely sensational. Yeah. 
I mean, what was amazing with them as well in the very early days, as I'm going back, you know, literally since he started, I was with him at the very beginning because he was part of my Rough Diamond program and his school. I was um, a real advocate for that. And in the early days, he didn't really have that many advocates. They would all say, yeah, yeah, we want to help you. And, but they never did until now. Obviously, you know, things obviously have got um, much better because their track record just keeps growing. But in the very early days, there was a guy called Ross Bailey who was maybe 17 or 18. And he had this idea to do almost like the Airbnb, but for retail so yeah. pop-up shops. I worked with him very closely and the labs put money into his company to do a pop-up shop, his first ever pop-up shop in Carnaby Street for the Queen's um, Jubilee. And it was such a massive, massive success. And that was the start of his kind of story. And his company's called Appear Here and he's going great guns. And I was recently in New York and I saw a huge kind of advert, uh, like billboard type thing for Appear Here that was drawn up on the sidewalk. And it was incredible for me to think that I kind of started with him at School Comms Arts. <laughs> How did you win over the people inside the organisation? You know, you were doing it under the, you were doing it under the radar for two years, but other people in the organisation did, you know, because quite often organisations have strong sort of self-defence mechanisms and kill your resources or push you out or make life difficult. Well, the good thing is I never had resources. They said, <laughs> we want you to do a lab, but we're, we're not giving you any money to do it. So right. I said, great. So I would be entrepreneurial and think of other ways in which, how could I make money when they're not giving me money so that I then don't need to ask permission and can do all of these things, can give SCA money, can get these kids in for uh, Rough Diamond and all the other semesters of things that we did that we put money into making those things those ideas happen and so my first port of call was Rory Sutherland who was the, who is the vice chairman there and I said to him Rory I've seen you speak in meetings you're very good is it possible if I act as your agent can I try and get you onto the speaker circuit and any money that I can get for you to speak comes into my lab so in Rory's words I was kind of pimping him out but it was my way of finding a way to get money into the organization, into my lab R&D pot. And it wasn't a lab, it was an R&D pot. It wasn't a P&L, 100%. It wasn't for profit and loss because I couldn't do R&D stuff if I was pinned to a P&L. So I had to keep it under a certain amount of money so that the WPP auditors wouldn't spot it. So lots of different tricks that I did. So very, very entrepreneurial thinking but within a large company to get round all of those processes and people saying no. So there, I had lots of advocates who um, were kind of want to be part of that. And those are the ones that I went to and I kind of ignored the ones that really weren't for it or were very negative or would stop me. They, they were great at doing the day job, but it wasn't to be part of what I was trying to achieve with change. So you can't take everyone with you is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I when your story about pimping out Rory, it just reminds me, I was in an organization and uh, I needed money for, I don't know, staff parties and swag and t-shirts and stuff. So I just rent, I rented out some of the desks in the office, but forgot to tell finance so that uh, we had an, we had an office income stream that 
that we could spend on things that were important to the team. That's what I mean. When you're an entrepreneurial spirit, you find a way and make a way. It reminds me very recently of work that I was doing with London Business School and they asked me to come in and work with them with um, one of their clients who was doing um, uh, maybe an MBA there or something. So it was a very large pharmaceutical company. And um, he said, can we get you in to teach as a practitioner for a couple of hours, like do like a workshop? So there were eight people in the class. So I said, well, I don't want to come to the school. Let's do it at Soho House. If there's only eight of them. We're not going to do a PowerPoint. We're going to sit and we're going to have proper chats. And anyway, cut a long story short, they were fine with doing that. And we went to Soho House and we had a table for eight of us. And it was a two hour workshop. Um, and I've now developed something called the Fearless Breakfast to follow on from that. And it was just a chat. And um, we went around, you know, the kind of things that I'd been doing, the problems they were encountering. And one of the guys said, you know, for, for the last four years, he'd been stuck in a narrative where he um, goes to his bosses to, um, with an idea. They say, oh, package it up for us. So he puts it in a PowerPoint and packages it up and goes back. And they say after a, a month or two, no. And then he goes back. So number one, <laughs> there's all these ideas in the bottom drawer that just have never happened. And number two, he just accepts it goes back and says to the team we've got no money or we can't do it so i said to him at that meeting there's seven of us around the table and you're all working in different areas of this organization you don't really know each other very well but do you all all of you have a, a, some money to play with and they all like you know a, a budget and they all said yes i said can you take a little chunk of that budget each of you and make it into one pot so I said, let's discuss. So they discussed and they said, yes, we could. So now we have one pot of money, which is a chunk of all of these different people across the different silos. So they now can work in um, as a team. Then I said, is there one problem that you could solve that would solve for all seven of you? Discuss. So we spent 20 minutes discussing that. And they came up with various different things that, that could be solved for all of them. So I said, so right now, who are you asking permission? You've got this pot of money. You know what the problem is. You know how you need to solve it. And they looked at me with two things. Number one, as if I'd handed them the crown jewels. But number two, with so much fear of now they've got to do something. (laughs) (laughs) The excuse, you've, you've taken their excuse away. Yes, I took all the excuse. And that's what I do with organizations who can't see it because they're so busy with day jobs and KPIs being set. And I can see it because I've spent, I've seen all the excuses I've gone through. That's how I kind of do uh, my job with companies now is I'm able to find a way through and cut through the bullshit. But I do think it's part of that sort of organizational structure where it's sort of parent child, isn't it? You know, we've, we've all been at school. The teacher knows best. You've got to put your hand up to go to the toilet and doing your own thing gets knocked out of you. And eventually you're at work and your boss is the only one who's allowed to have good ideas. And then organizations go, I don't know why it's so difficult to innovate in this company. It's like, really? Look in the, mir- look in the mirror. It's leadership, isn't it? It's um, and middle management and... Um, fear. And fear. A lot of people are fearful. And, and I didn't have that for whatever reason. I, I talk about it in my fearless manifesto in, in the book. But you do need a certain amount of fearlessness if you're going to push forward but I think the main thing is um, for anyone that maybe was on the other side to me 
was that I never came from a bad place. I wasn't doing it to get on the board or move up the ranks. I don't care about that. That's not my, that's not how you're going to get the best out of me by putting me on a board or having me go to meeting after meeting. That's not how you get the best um, out of people like me. You give them other ways in which to flourish. Uh, you send them, um, you know, you, you, I used to go to different events around the world where I literally knew nothing and no one. It would be part of my semester. And it was very, you know, that was a very difficult thing to do, but it was paid for, thankfully, by the lab within my pot of money. And I was able to do all of these different things. But that then breeds jealousy sometimes as well with why does she get to go here or do that? And I would do things at a real rock bottom price. You know, some people would go to Cannes Lion every year and spend six grand on accommodation. I would spend 500 quid because I would find an Airbnb for 1500 pounds for the week and would have four beds. So two bedrooms, four beds, two huge couches. And I would say, who wants a room, who wants a bed or a place to stay for 250 pounds for the week? And that's how I, so it <laughs> It's it's it just that just it's, doing things very entrepreneurially. It's funny, I absolutely there. When you go and do things and take risks, you do get that envy. Why why are they allowed to do that? And it's like they just because they never asked. So stop asking and just do and stop complaining. Yeah, that, that's I'm, a good one, isn't it? Asking for um, forgiveness, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, totally. And one of the you you mentioned briefly that you developed that two-hour workshop into a fearless breakfast so what what's that is that is that a thing you still run yeah yeah I've got um one in fact it's uh, open to anyone who's listening who wants for their organization I've done it for a couple of companies now and um it, it works more for companies with maybe 10 or 12 people within them but who work in different areas within the company so they don't really know each other and so therefore it's uh, Chatham House rules and they can be very open and honest and we can really start to help them. There's three of us that do it and um, that it's in someone's home. It's, it's not like something they've ever really been to before. It's, it's not the usual workshop type thing. It's just very honest conversation and getting very deep as to what's the problem, not trying to solve the wrong problem really well. Yeah, they... <laughs> That whole sort of fear plays into that trying to solve the wrong problem, doesn't it? Often that happens. I, I'm, work, I'm, I'm working with clients and they've sort of said, can you come and talk to us about sales? And sales just isn't the problem that they have at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so they've got, to be, they've got to be open to understanding that the other, there's, there's another problem, which might be them. And that becomes tricky. Um, but one of the things you talked about was going to events. And I know you went to something called Summer at Sea. Yeah. What's Summit at Sea for those people who have never heard of it? Well, it's a little bit like Ted meets Davos meets Burning Man. Right. On a boat. On a boat. 3,000. They don't do it on a boat anymore. They do it in LA now. Right. But when I went for a couple of years, it was on a boat. 3,000 people um, meet in Miami, pushed out into international waters, no Wi-Fi. Um, literally, it was just just the most amazing, different, uh, random people. You're learning loads of stuff and it's very intense for three or four days. And it was there actually that I was sitting in a, I just finished uh, at Ogilvy. They'd closed down, the CEO had closed down the lab. And um, I was kind of thinking, you know, what do I do? Where do I go? And I thought I'm going to, I'm going to go there, be inspired and just see what happens. 
and I happened to be in a jacuzzi on this boat and chatting <laughs> to this guy and he said who are you and I said I'm Nicole from Nicole because I don't have that big title I'm head of innovation or you know anymore and we started chatting he said oh my god you've got some incredible stories you're a, a woman pushing boundaries in tech in everything for the last 20 30 years you've got um some amazing stories and you should write them down I'm a publisher and I know and and I said, oh, no, I'm not a writer. And that was the start of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and how did, you, how did you write the book? Did you do the sort of 500 words a day or? No, it was very, very um, difficult time because my mum had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and, and she died. She passed away before the book was, was finished. And I tried to kind of get out of it and said to um, my publisher, you know, I, I can't do this. I've tried to sit down and write and I'm not a writer. And he said, but and my mum had just passed. And I said, I can't do this right now. And he said, but your mum knew you were going to do a book, which then was. Quick bit of emotional so blackmail. My, my partner, um, I said to him, you know, I'm not a, a writer. I'm, I'm a speaker and I speak all over the world. And I'm, I, I, that's how I talk to people and he said well there's an app called day one why don't you speak into the app and as you speak it will then type and that's how I wrote the book I took the book oh right fantastic yeah it was an app called day one it's a free journal app and it is brilliant how um, I was able to just get a um, a paragraph out of my head and and down and then I'd go back on it because obviously in the early stages of it it's not understanding people's names or and you do have to go back and check it but as you get into a flow you've done one paragraph another paragraph all of a sudden you finish one chapter then another chapter and it just it flowed really much better for me by speaking it and how long did it take I mean what were you did you set yourself a goal of sort of speaking to yourself for an hour a day or did, was it just as and when? My goal was I met uh, my publisher in the November and my mum passed in the, the end of January. So I started really in earnest, probably February. Yeah. And I wanted it to be done and published in a year so that it, when it was the anniversary of Summit at Sea, I could go back to LA and launch it in LA, which I did. Oh, fab. So I kind of, the timings were worked back on when the latest I have to get it handed to you for editing and um, et cetera, which was, I think, probably June time. And then there was a bit of backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Um, and so it was, you know, for it to be ready for November for launch. Oh, fab. So in a year, six, well, sort of three or four months, really, you managed to get, you managed to get the book done. But I'm, I'm, I'm just one of those people that if you, if you say no to me or you set me that kind of target, I just, I then just go hell for leather. And plus the fact at the same time, I was setting up my own company, the NY Collective. So in the early days when Ogilvy had first closed the labs, I was interviewing but I found every interview I went on, people would say, we really want you, we need a head of innovation, we need your help. And when I'd start to say the kind of things that, that would need to get done, they would then say, oh, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I found myself unemployable, really, in, in what I, I needed to do for companies so that I would not solve the wrong problem really well because I am not measured by say with agencies or with consultancies they are paid to not solve the problem 
they want a recurring revenue stream, don't of they? So it's they absolutely yeah. not in their interest to fix the problem. Yeah. Um, before we go on to the collective and the lab for hire, just taking you back, you mentioned that in the book there is a fearless manifesto. Yeah. What are some of the, what are some of the things in there? What I was finding was that people were saying, what are the traits that people need or et cetera, et cetera. So there's just a few things in the book where I just talk about these are the kind of traits that you would need. So, um, you know, there's a eight principles of a rough diamond and, you know, a mantra for survival, uh, whether it be, and those would be develop curiosity, learn how to learn, know how to say what matters it pays to be honest, become a rapid processor, always open because life doesn't wait, being very clear and no off switch. So those were my kind of um, principles, you know, my mantra for survival. And the fearless manifesto is just kind of lessons that I've learned in life that I wanted to pass on to people as to what I found had worked. So it's important to ignite the tribe, um, developing nerve, create simplicity, the dawning of an alchemist, take a breath and a work and a life balance. So it just, it just goes into a bit more detail in the book, but those are just a few of the things that I've noticed that helped me become um, more efficient and it suited my personality to do what I was doing. The other thing was I had a really, really good understanding of emotional intelligence and I started to have that impact my whole team so we I would ask HR to make sure that they would um, that we would do emotional intelligence testing on the team so that we could work out my weaknesses with somebody else's strengths and vice versa so that I wouldn't try and say you know you're really rubbish at that you need to get better I'd say you know you're not great at that so let's just leave it someone else is better and let's work on what you are good at Ah, strength-based leadership. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's that whole fallacy that people should be well-rounded as opposed to spiky. Just, you know, people are different. Let's play to people's strengths. It's much better. Yeah. Otherwise, they end up feeling rubbish about themselves all the time because they're trying to get better at something that they're just, it doesn't suit their personality. Look, even if they wanted to, they couldn't be better at it. It's just, it just causes them pain. There was one of our team, Shannon, um, she's amazing. And she ran the Rough Diamond program as well. She was brilliant. And um, she just couldn't get up in the mornings. And it was when the Olympics was on. And because we were based in East London, they staggered everybody's start time. So it wasn't like a you know, public transport, like, you know, a massive rush at uh, nine in the morning. And so we worked out then that, you know, I would start at seven and she maybe would start at 11. And she was just a different person just from doing that. And so we just kept it at that. (laughs) Her start time at work was always 11. Well, and some people, you know, some people just have a different, different rhythm, don't they? Yeah. And there's a load of, there's a load of research that says, actually, we're just making, particularly teenage boys, their lives at secondary school, we're just making their lives miserable by making them start at eight o'clock or eight thirty. Yeah. Uh for the same so reason. So that's what I did and I still do now is I, I just shake things up because I'm just trying to find another way to do it. Who says that it has to be done that way? Yeah. Let's treat people like individuals and how do we get the best yeah. out of them? So now having been unemployable and having been an entrepreneur for a long time, you became an entrepreneur and started 
started the collective and Lab for Hire? Is it the same thing? Is it it's different? Just what the are same they? Same thing, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, so I was very lucky with my initials, NY. So um, just played with NYC and uh, Nicole Yershon Collective. It's a model that I think is going to be very relevant for most companies moving forward with the gig economy, which is all about a leveraged business model. Yeah. You know, why do you have to ha employ 2,000 people? Why do they have to work nine to five? Why do they all have to be in a huge rented building? All of those questions that I'd been asking over the years just allowed me to then, when I set my company up, run it as a, a leveraged business model. So I staff up, I staff down, depending on what it is that I'm doing. And because my black book is so big and varied, I'm able to pull the right people in depending on, on the job that it is that needs doing. And so who's your, who's your target customer and what, what is the problem of theirs that you solve? It could be anyone from, um, I would say personality-wise, because it's not a company-specific, but personality-wise, it's someone that wants change to happen within their organization. They're enlightened and they've woken up and they, they want something to happen. So they're the kind of leaders that I get involved with, people who actually want it. And it could be anybody from Danone, for instance, the, the guy um, who runs the supply chain for infants, baby nutrition across the world. So 60, I was dealing with 60 people, 60 countries. And he had asked me to uh, work on a day for them as to what the future, what their future supply chain is going to look like, literally from cow to consumer how, what impact is technology going to have, whether it be Internet of Things, whether it be blockchain companies or, or how do you deal with waste or uh, with food. And so we all orchestrated a day for him. Well, firstly, I said to him, are you talking to anyone already about this? Any companies, any startups? And, um, and he said, no. I said, I, I just want you to audit your own company. Just take a day or two and go around and just find out whether you're doing any of this already because I'm going to go and find you some amazing companies and you'll start speaking to them and working with them and you're already doing it somewhere else. Yes. And he came back to me after a day and said, he's just found, he's found a head of innovation in the Paris office. And he's also found out that the worldwide IT guys are working with Accenture and three blockchain companies. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, and so I said, great. Well, so he said, you know, you're worth your money before you've even started just by asking the right questions. Because I could just see a point where I would engage with, with some companies that I thought were amazing and he wouldn't be able to engage with them after the day. So it'd be a total waste of the day. It would be almost kind of like a, a jazz hands of what he could do and, and nothing could then progress. So, you know, we, we ended up doing the most amazing day for them and uh, walking them all around uh, East London and getting them out of their comfort zones. He wanted it first to be at their offices and I said, no, that's not going to happen. That's not how they're going to learn just sitting around a table being talked at. So, I, you know, there was Great Western Railways. I had a session with them, their, their stop and think sessions, where they said, can you help us with um, what's the future of ticketing? And, and I turned up and I said, you think we're doing the future of ticketing? We're not. We're going to do what's the future of payments. And I'd taken with me a guy that knows everything there is to know about payments. And we talked to them about how people are paying in Sweden and you know that I said no one cares about a ticket so if that's your your strategy you're going in the wrong direction 
And they said it was their own, their first kind of stop and think session where they've actually had to stop <laughs> to think. So I'm, I'm still disrupting, but in a, for people who, who want to be disrupted. Yes. Brilliant. If you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, is there a time or a thing you know now that you wish you'd known at some point in the past? It's amazing, isn't it? Wisdom is, is an amazing thing. Um, I would be more patient <laughs> because I just was always fearful. And especially when I started on my own, you know, I've always had a salary coming in and, and each month I'd be panicked and I'd get to the end of the year and my dad said, would say, you know, you've done great. Why are you panicking every month? That's like, a, again, another human construct that's been put in place. And because your bills are each month or don't panic, just get to the end of the year. Are you okay? Can you pay out? dividends and so I think the even always when you fast forward yourself six months or a year from pain that you've gone through or decisions you might have made always a year later it always feels totally fine yet at the time you beat yourself up you're not patient you want to run you you have you can't crash through the gears you have to kind of just settle yourself into these things happen for a reason they give you a learning and you just got to learn, learn from them. Very good. Very good. And if you were to think about some, maybe some books that you've, uh, that you've read, you touched on, uh, some earlier, um, Dave Trott. what, yeah, what, uh, Dave Trot? what, any book in particular, has he written multiple or all of them? They're, they're <laughs> amazing. He's done four predatory thinking, creative mischief, just look up. He's, he does a blog post every week with campaign and his own blog post. It's just a brilliant, there's a, a few of them that are just brilliant writers. There's a guy called George Tannenbaum on Ad Aged or Bob Hoffman. He's done uh, a couple of good books as well. I mean, within that area of advertising and marketing and, and really calling bullshit, they're brilliant, brilliant writing. So I, I love them. I also, I was, and I'm quite close to Charles Handy. I loved his book, The Second Curve. And that okay. was quite inspiring. Who else is there? Oh, there's so many. It's like asking <laughs> your favorite song, isn't it? And then your mind just goes blank. I wish I would. You... It's really the ones that spring to mind, I think, that are, are really useful. That's brilliant. And Nicole, where, should, where can people get a hold of you if they want to get in touch? I'm all over social media with my name. I'm lucky like that because there's only one me. So my thank you, my parents, for that. <laughs> so uh, whether it be LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or my website is NicoleYershon.com. So, yeah, just reach out anytime. If I can help you with something, then I will, or connect you to someone, then I will. Nicole, thank you very much indeed for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. 
LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.